VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, September the 7th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 86 26 little bit of a growlers update here before we get into some other issues and topics of the day they re-signed their captain james melindy for a standard player contract for the upcoming season the only captain the growlers have ever known and of course the first person to put his hands on the kelly cup when they won the title back in 2019 I'll tell you one thing uh, melindy brings is grit that boy is seriously tough. So he's back for another year. That's good news for the Growlers. But you know who Melindy and the rest of the team are going to miss? Zach O'Brien. Zach O'Brien was the second leading scorer in the ECHL last year. He signed a contract with the Toronto Marlies in the American Hockey League. So unless something goes sideways in Toronto, he won't be donning the Growlers kit this year. But congratulations to Melindy. Or just a little interesting one. If you've ever been to Boston, it's a lovely city. And there are some similarities with the, say, maybe the city of St. John's and some of our culture and heritage across the province. It was founded today, uh, 392 years ago in 1630. And, of course, pretty famous for some significant notable events. Uh, A lot of the American Revolution happened in Boston, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, the Battle of Bunker Hill. Of course, there's a lot of Irish in Boston. Many of them moved to the south of Boston, to the southeast, right? And the extraordinary accent that they sport. Then some of the things that they've done really well in Boston with the preservation of heritage, something that we seriously lack, especially in St. John's. Now, some communities around the province have really put their best foot forward and made a massive effort for the preservation of whether it be historical sites, heritage buildings, homes, and the like. In Boston, some of the notables, Horticultural Hall. Have you ever been to Boston, Dave? It's some city. It's a really small city, though. Here's a curious fact. You can put the entirety of Boston, the city of Boston, on the grounds of Denver's airport. How about that? Anyway, that means nothing. Horticultural Hall on Huntington Avenue in 1901. Jordan Hall in 1903. The Longfellow Bridge, 1906. Fenway Park, of course, home of the Boston Red Sox, opened in 1912. Logan International Airport, opened in 1923. The Boston Bruins, they were founded in 24, played their first game at the Boston Garden in 1928. Here's a couple of notable firsts where Boston is uh, also uh, of note. So it is had the first public park, Boston Common, the first public or state school, the Boston Latin School, the first subway system, Boston, right? Tremont Street Subway, 1897, the first or one of the first uh, large public libraries, Boston's Public Library, established in 1848. And of course, then you've got Harvard and MIT and Boston College and the University of Boston. So well-known and exciting city is Boston. How do you, what do you think of that? All right, this is a great story. We actually talked about this a little while ago. The the thought that there was indeed a World War II bomber in Gander Lake. And it was pretty well understood it was indeed there, but on Monday, divers confirmed it. They went down to about 120 feet, so that's 36.5 meters in depth, and they found it. It's upside down, so they saw the landing gear first, and apparently one of the tires still looks like it's holding some air, which is interesting after all these years. It went down in 1943. It was a B-24 Liberator bomber carrying four men. 
uh, crashed during takeoff September the 4th. All four men aboard died. So one of the explorers is from the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. Her name is Jill Henrith. Here's what she says. She says, Gander Lake is very dark. The water is a red tea color. It just absorbs all of the light. So it's like a perpetual night dive. So Gander Lake is obviously very deep. But it's been untouched and undisturbed for some 79 years and now confirmed. What they're going to do with that confirmation, I'm not sure. But a World War II bomber in Gander Lake. Crash, 1943. Okay. First day of school. Exciting, right? Now, the obvious goal this year, after two and a half years of disruptions, is for in-person learning throughout the entirety of the school year. How that's going to look and work, not really sure. But it comes with a complete suite of emotions. And as a parent, you'll have a different emotion maybe than your neighbor, and certainly for all the children, they're all a little bit different. So you'll have some who are quite excited to get in, some who have been dreading going back to school. You'll have anxiety, and you'll have the happiness to see some of your friends. So there's a full gamut being experienced by students, staff, teachers, admin, other faculty, staff, and of course, parents alike. But here we get back into the classroom. No more cohorts, so the approach seems to feel like we're going back where there's nothing to worry about. Now, you know full well we don't talk in the terms of fear regarding the virus or anything else on this program. We certainly make every attempt to not do so, but it has not gone away. If we're being honest with each other, it's not gone away. Now, yes, children have proven to be very resilient. There is no question there. But there are some parents out there who are still expressing some concerns about the school system and the school year and what maybe is not in place. Now, air purification systems and air filtration systems have been installed in the classrooms and many common areas. But now with no cohorts in place, it'll be very much the mingling that we've experienced and we're all used to pre-pandemic. So that will be part of the conversation. And of course, masks are not mandatory in the K-12 system. They're encouraged, very much unlike at Memorial University, where we're all, you know, the whole concept of follow the science. Well, what science are we following anymore? So at MUN, it's mandatory to wear masks in the lecture theaters and in the classrooms and in certain different uh, areas of Memorial University, like the Student Wellness and Counseling Center in St. John's, Health Services Center, Grenfell Campus in Cornerbrook, and all the COVID-19 testing sites. So no masks in school. What do you think of that, number one? You know full well there will be some children going back to school wearing a mask, and absolutely there will be some not wearing a mask. I don't know how important it is to adjudicate and have some understanding about who is and who is not, because whether it be at the beginning for people who did not wear a mask in a public space, and we tried not to or certainly was encouraged to not give the stink eye, not for any of these unnecessary public altercations. Same thing now when the mask mandates have gone away. Many people quite pleased with it, obviously. But some children, some staff may indeed be wearing a mask. And if we've been fighting about freedom, just let them be free to do that if they are so inclined, you know, or whether you think they're doing freedom wrong. So the masking issue is... I think it's going to be a conversation that is had, and some parents are absolutely concerned, and so be it, right? It's their children. Let them be worried about their own children if they think that's the thing. So how anything might change is they're saying they're going to evaluate based on absences. Okay, so let's say quite clearly, if you just have a runny nose, you know, have an allergy, or you've had a cough because you have a cold, you can go to school like you always did. You have the encouragement to stay home if you're unwell, but how they're going to evaluate where we are and how we got there, there's still some concerns out there in some corners, and if you want to take it on, we can absolutely do exactly that. 
have we gone back to the distribution of rapid test kits in school? That just popped in my head. I'm not sure where that stands because remember, it was a big issue last year when so many people who are not involved in the K-12 system, we had to go out and buy the tests. I guess I didn't, my wife's a teacher. But so many people had to go buy a rapid test kit because you were trying to be careful. You were trying to understand why you didn't feel well. And the, the test results are not perfect. There's issues with sensitivity and specificity. But are they distributing the test kits again in school? I guess I'll find out today when I ask my wife a little later on. Okay. So some of the things that we talk about regarding curriculum and some of the other life skills stuff, you've heard me many, many times talk about things like first aid. And some schools do a really great job on it. Some maybe not so much. But also the value of a dollar. You know, the installation of a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit. And that doesn't mean you're going to set up a hedge fund. It starts with things like a lemonade stand, right? But in the world of money management, I'll now move this on into the adult realm of just how much pressure we're all feeling with cost of living issues and inflation. So the Bank of Canada was under fire for not doing enough in a timely fashion to combat inflation. And notably, one of the monetary policy levers that they can pull is interest rates. And it looks like another hike coming today. You know, on one hand, we absolutely need the Bank of Canada to have our backs and to act in a timely fashion. But interest rate hikes, it might feel good inside the political discourse, but everything we touch, every bit of outstanding consumer debt, we're now paying more. So it is the epitome of a double-edged sword. And credit card. There's a story I read this morning about credit card debt. It's pretty significant stuff. So there was a big spike in consumer debt on credit cards in particular in the second quarter of this year. Some 6.5% higher debt uh, burden on people's credit cards. Some people have no choice. Some people manage their credit cards pretty well. They've got a bunch of bonus points that they get, whether it be for your WestJet MasterCard or whatever, and you pay it off every time, every month. But that's not the case for an awful lot of Canadians. And we're carrying some heavy debt loads. The most recent numbers, here it is, so consumer debt across provinces. This does not include mortgages. And look, interest rates and mortgages, it's a, this is a big deal. You know, on one hand, it feels good for, to suit your political agenda to bash Tiff Macklem or whatever, but the interest rates has an implication on my debt load, and that means it has an implication on your debt load. The province with the highest average consumer debt is Alberta, interestingly enough. You know, they also have the highest wages and no sales tax, so that's sort of a strange outcome. And that's just over $25,000. Number two on that list, Newfoundland and Labrador almost $23,000 in average consumer debt. That number seems low to me. You know, we know that last year when we heard from Stats Canada and some of the banking or institutions talking about for every dollar Canadians earn, we owe about $1.87 in debt servicing. So $22,000 is the average consumer debt in Newfoundland and Labrador. And of course, you know, we can talk about the big debt and deficit that the federal liberals are running. And fair ball, fair ball, we can talk about it, absolutely. There's a lot of different options to manage sovereign debt versus my own household debt. You know, unless I go to Consolidate and I go to see Al Antelet, his organization, what have you, there's options out there, but it's much more tricky and difficult a storm to weather when it's on your own personal debt, but those are big numbers for Canadians and what they're dealing with with consumer debt load. Holy macaroni. All right, let's change gears here. 
So we speak with Michael Harvey every now and then. Of course, he's the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Let's see if we can get him going again one day this week, Dave. And this is about the fact that there's still an absence of what they call duty to document legislation. So two and a half years after the Muskrat Falls inquiry and the recommendations brought forward by the uh, uh, LeBlanc, Justice LeBlanc, he said that he recommended the province adopt that legislation within six months. Two and a half years later, still not done. Now, you can't flip a switch and all of a sudden legislation is crafted, drafted, debated, and passed. But it would, look, it would require everybody working in the government to have a permanent, retrievable record of all their deliberations and all their decisions, even if some of those are communicated verbally. Now, the government will go on to say, here's one of the quotes from the government talking about it. Although there is no duty to document legislation in place, public bodies are still required to manage all documents created or received as they are property of the Crown. The Management of the Information Act sets out the requirements for this. That's fine, but we know that we've been betrayed by this nonsense. So to tell me that there's already protocols and parameters in place is of no comfort to me, given what we found out during the Muscat Falls inquiry. There was a complete mismanagement, and the level of dishonesty was staggering. So, fine, yeah, there's all sorts of parameters in place because of that one particular piece of legislation, the Management uh, of Information Act, but duty to document. It's a real shame that we've got to go to these lengths. But in the need for accountability and transparency, knowing that the wounds are still gaping and still being bombarded with sifto salt because of the looming crisis that continues at Muskrat Falls, maybe, just maybe, if we're going to use buzzwords like accountability and transparency while campaigning, let's see if we can put some things on paper, black and white, legislation, and punishments for those who don't follow along with what would be then a law. So two and a half years later, and this is not new. This recommendation is old as the 90s. This recommendation was also echoed by Clyde Wells in 2015 in his report where he did the review of some of the way that the government handles legislation or what have you. So, okay, you know, that was a statutory review of the province's access to information regime, of course, done in 2015 by Justice Wells. That stuff is just simply not good enough. It just 100% is not good enough. It doesn't mean that there's a level of mistrust for every single person working for the government, but for the so-called bad apples, those who will willfully obfuscate it deceived and did not use documentation and you know even we went from uh, public briefing notes you know on paper for cabinet ministers what have you that kind of went away too and it's all verbal it's hard to hold people to account for their quiet conversations which may have been whispering out in a corner of the bloody confederation building parking lot or while traipsing around kent's pond no paper put it on paper duty to document then we'll know for sure Who's involved, how they deliberated, and arrived at decisions? What do you think? Give us a call. All right, I see a bunch of law professors, including some from Dalhousie School, law school uh, talking about supporting the creation of civilian-led oversight board for law enforcement. Again, there's no downside here. When we have, you know, there's been an erosion in the trust and the faith in law enforcement. Some of it real, some of it perceived, but it is something that we all have to consider, whether it be allegations of sexual assault and the like. For every good police officer out there, this can only be of benefit to them. It, of course, benefits uh, civilians and society, but for law enforcement, I see the distinct benefit for them as well. You know, it was a good idea to create the serious incident response team led by Mike King. 
it'll be an, an additional layer of protection if we go ahead and bring forward a civilian-led oversight board. And of course, they can't do everything, but they'll be able to manage certain things, like setting high-level policies related to the recruitment and training of officers, establishing use of force standards, consulting with individual towns to help identify policing priorities. Of course, all of these would be done concurrently, and all law enforcement agencies themselves, and CERT, of course, investigates after the fact. So some of these preemptive things that a civilian-led board can be involved with seems like a very good idea. And I bet you a lot of uh, folks working in law enforcement would welcome it, to be honest. Okay, we're still following along with what happened out of Combi Chance at the Brea Renewable Fuel Facility. You know the story, a flash fire and an explosion. Eight people were sent to hospital, six remain in hospital. We wish them all a speedy recovery. But apparently there was 30 workers on site that day. And some of them were actually on site as well in 1998. So the medical and the mental scars are real. There's even some thought and talk coming from the union that not so sure everyone's going to return to work. Now, the investigation continues. We'd all like to know exactly what happened, but we're not going to find out until there's an investigation that's been completed. The facility has to be proven safe before they open the doors. It's going to be at least Monday before that happens. But if you are in the area, uh, maybe a worker act come by chance or the Brea Renewable Fuel Facility, or just remember the general public and like to chime in on it, we can do it. Last one. Okay, remember a number of years ago when there was a strike at St. John's International Airport and the Union uh, PSAC were involved. So they were striking, of course, on the access road to get to the airport. The exact place they should, I would expect them to be picketing. But then they also made their way to a residential street and it was the top dog at the airport authority, Mr. Collins, and they were picketing in front of his home. Now we know there's been a lot on the go in Mount Pearl with their striking workers. Final offer rejected. Copies of the final offer were being burned. The rhetoric is pretty solid and pretty, it's, it's pretty harsh. So the deal financially looks good. So says even many members of the union themselves and including Sherry Hillier at QP. But it's the possibility of some discipline or punishment for any violation, safety and otherwise. They want those to go away before they're even willing to bring the offer to the rank and file for a vote. Now they've done the same thing that Peace Act did with the airport uh, strike. They've gone to picket in front of a councillor's home. I know it's allowed. I think they call it secondary site picketing. So it's available to them. But look, if you're a resident who has nothing to do with council, then this is just not great. And that's not about union busting around the union. This is about what about if it was your street? And they say they're going to stay there. And there's a megaphone in play. And it's in a school zone. So I know they're frustrated. And I know the standoff is real. But there's also implications for residents of Mount Pearl that have nothing to do with it. They don't work for the city. They're not a members of the union. And so whether it be the implications even just to get Mount Pearl Blade hockey going, get some ice on the, on the floor of the glacier, or whatever. But they're picketing a secondary site, and in this particular case, the, the lady who posted it actually named the street, da, 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 or I suppose it doesn't really matter, is it Jackman Drive? Yeah, on Jackman. Anyway, you want to talk about that? Let's go. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Tune time. So it's today in 1982, the, made it to the top of the album charts. At number one was American Fool by John Cougar. Then went on to be known as John Cougar Mellencamp. The number one track on that record is Hurts So Good. We're taking a break and then we're coming back.
Oh, welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Anna. You're on the air. Oh, good morning, Patty. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How about you? I'm fine. Thank you very much. Great. Uh, Patty, I'm just calling in about that uh, sugar tax, the uh, Liberal government uh, Rethink Your Drink campaign. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wasn't paying much attention to this beginning because I don't drink sugar drinks. So I just figured, you know, just going on a case of, you know, Pepsi, whatever. But I was at the Dominion yesterday and picked up a case of non-flavored drinks, zero sugar, written quite, you know, in bold letters on the on the case. And when I got home, I looked at my receipt, and I was charged $2.41 for a sugar tax. So I called Dominion, and I spoke to the lady there, and she told me the manufacturer and suppliers are charging that sugar tax to everything because the process is not laid out properly for them by the government. It's like a 50-page book or something, and they don't know what to charge it on, so they're going to apply the tax to everything. But, I, I mean, I'm just amazed. I called, you know, the Liberal government. There was a number there you could call with your concerns. Of course, you can't leave a message. You have to send them an email. And I did call Cody's office, and, of course, she got a voicemail on also, so I left a message, and I haven't heard back. So I'm concerned that this is just another tax grab by the Fury government, and they're trying to tell us they're looking after our health. Even if it was a sound concept with encouraging healthier choices, but with the confusion that is reigning supreme, whether it be at the wholesale level or the distributors or at the point of sale with the retailer, they were complaining right up to the 11th hour that they were still a little bit confused. So now exactly what we all knew was going to happen is that it was going to be widely applied. People are paying it on 100% natural fruit juices. They're paying it on diet drinks. They're paying it on other things which we told were exempt. And the wholesaler is going going to have an easy way out by saying, look, we're all pretty confused here because we didn't have much in the way of information. So we all, well, actually, I knew this was going to happen. It was inevitable. And so how does this affect the first round of remittances? You know, you're not going to get a rebate. You're not going to be able to go back to the store and get your two bucks back. So everyone's going to end up paying, unnecessarily so, because there wasn't much done. You know, rethink your drink is a catchy slogan, but it doesn't give, doesn't, uh, doesn't give information to those who are applying the tax. No, and my concern is, like, we've got 200 boil water advisories in rural communities on any given day in Newfoundland, and this is what this government is concentrating on. We knew right away it wasn't a health issue because Minister Osborne wasn't at the presentation. You had your finance minister and you had your premier. There is nothing there to tell us where this money is going to be spent. Who's keeping track of it, Patty? We don't even know where the tax is going to be collected. They're talking about, you know, breakfast programs. They're throwing out fitness classes. But it's all, you know, nothing is organized. All we had was Minister Cody condescendingly speaking to us, telling us we to stop drinking sugar drinks or we're going to be punished. So now she's punishing the whole population for drinking. Yeah, and now, I find this really upsetting. We do know where the money is supposed to go. When they debated it on the floor of the House of Assembly, it was about the revenue would go to creating new programs to deal with healthy lifestyle issues. But that doesn't seem to be the case. It's going to be helping to fuel the physical tax credit, physical activity tax credit. It's going to go to Kids Eat Smart. It's going to go to a prenatal program for, based on nutrition. That's all fine, but those are programs in existence. So, again, that's just another layer of frustration that people will share, is that we didn't exactly get what we were told was coming. 
even if people agree with the tax or they don't agree with the tax or it doesn't apply to them, whatever the case may be. But I don't know how many receipts people have taken pictures of and sent to me where it's clear that they bought a diet drink, which we were told was exempt, and yet they paid the tax. Mm -hmm. So the the story that really got me yesterday is, you know, people try to stretch a buck. And as opposed to buying a a bottle of iced tea, you could buy a powdered iced tea mix. And this one particular powdered iced tea mix costs $7.89. But because of the amount of iced tea you can make with it, based on how much water you're supposed to add with the powder, the tax on the $7.89 was $6.11. You think that thing is going to sit on the shelf for a while? I'm pretty sure. Yes. Another thing, Patty, like, you know, hot chocolate or cocoa, which I probably drink in the winter or whatever. So now I'm going to be taxed for drinking that. Like, I'm a very active person. I don't need Siobhan Cody telling me I need to get up and move or stop drinking. She's not my mother. We are mature people. We make our own decisions. And is this going to be Premier Fury's legacy, this sugar tax? Well, well the laughing stock of Canada, as it is, introducing it. And now the way they've introduced it is just unbelievable. It would be easier to accept if the rollout was clear and was uh, understood at the resale level and at the wholesale level. It doesn't mean anybody agrees with it. I don't know how much of an impact it will have. I don't know if we're a laughing stock, but because it's so confusing and because people are paying tax on things that are supposed to be exempt, it's a problem. It absolutely is, Anna, and I understand your frustration. Okay, well, thank you for letting me speak about this. And I'd love to have someone from uh, Minister Cody's office try to explain to us how they're going to fix this. If they had an ounce of integrity, they would scrap this now, go back and build it the way it was supposed to be built. Because right now, milk just went up, and now all of our, everything we're drinking has gone up. Yeah, that milk. I know you have a busy day. That's okay. I enjoyed the conversation. That milk issue based on supply management is its own kintle of fish that deserves some conversation. Second milk hike this year, 2.5%, which is about two cents a liter. It went up six cents in February. So every time we turn our head, everything we look at and we touch, we eat or we drink, it's gone up in price. Appreciate the time, yeah, Anna. Well, just, uh, just another side note. I just read in the sure. paper since last September, uh, two liters of milk has gone up almost a dollar since last September. Yeah. Anyway, have a good one. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, their inputs have uh, shot through the roof. They're not going to have any sort of big profit because of this. But the whole conversation about supply management, I think, is interesting. And I would imagine not so many people or too many people understand exactly how supply management works. Maybe you should. But there was this guy from Australia that was in Canada some years back talking about in support of. And then we had someone refuted. It. it was really good. I'll try to find that person's name just for the purpose of information to talk about how it works, what the attention is. Now, with farmers, with Crosby Williams or other dairy farmers across the province, we get it. Your inputs have skyrocketed in price. Totally understand. And if we're talking about small, medium-sized farms across the country, you know, maybe most importantly in our own province, obviously, Because we've got a food insecurity problem, and we cannot afford to see small farms shut shut down and not whether this particular storm, whether it be because of the price of feed or fertilizer or additives or whatever else, because you know full well we don't even grow enough or produce enough food here in this province, let alone can we accept uh, losing farms. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the roads, and then we're talking about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Bonavista. That's Craig Priority. Craig, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. Nice talking to you this morning, and thank you for taking the call. My pleasure. 
before we get into the roads, I just want to just add a comment to Hannah. I think she hit the nail on the head when she um, and in her discussions and viewpoints on the sugar tax. But it is also worthy to note that the amount of uh, consumption for these sugary drinks has been on a steady decline over the last number of years. Oh, is that right? So- yeah, so we were headed in the right direction. The amount of the uh, the diet drinks was on the increase. And to my understanding, Patty, I, I really didn't call in the sugar tax, but uh, we've got some data to indicate that. So one would give you the indication that we were headed in the right direction with some some uh, sound education programs that we can, we can circulate, then we would arrive, you know, with the, the solid goal of reducing our sugar consumption. But we were making good headway. I think the the beverage companies would probably be able to provide the data as to the sales in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. So that, that's probably a point that someone can bring forward or provide for you, or we surely will as well. Oh, I can find it. Uh, yeah, the other the, side of that is, you know, making better choices. Look, that all sounds right, doesn't it? Because we yeah. know all the issue with the yeah. prevalence of chronic illness around here and our diet and our sedentary life. So we all get that stuff. Maybe we're making better strides and more better, pardon me, better decisions. I don't know. Uh, I'll have a look for the beverage numbers. But the other point that people bring up is, you know, why not, as opposed to tax what you deem to be bad, help me afford things that are deemed to be, quote unquote, good or healthier or better choices. That all sounds good in concept too, but I don't know how you manage that. I mean, I really don't quite understand how you'd make that happen. The epitome of picking winners and losers is making something more affordable. It's easy enough to apply a syntax because we all know what that means. Booze, cigarettes, and otherwise. So, but making better choices more affordable, I don't know. I, I, I think it sounds remarkable, but it also sounds remarkably complicated. I agree. Everyone is on board with reducing our sugar consumption. Uh, no, but nobody got any qualms with that. How you go about doing it, and, and I just think that uh, a sugar tax is the wrong. Research would state that uh, it didn't work. Um, you know, we're, we're the first in Canada for a reason, because others have studied like Northwest Territories and, and opted not to. So, but the only way is that, yes, uh, noble intention to reduce the sugar, but, um, yeah, wrong way, especially in this inflated time and the cost of living to add another tax, uh, especially when the sales were reducing. Uh, roads in the district of Bonavista, Patty, I, I, uh, probably in previous calls I had mentioned the, the roads as well. We've got two major routes in the district of Bonavista. We've got 230, that is the main route that will bring you straight down um, the Trinity Bay side of the peninsula. Route 235, very scenic Route 235, will bring you up on the Bonavista Bay side, the Kings Cove, uh, you know, Southern Bay uh, route. I've contended that uh, there's not many people in the district of Bonavista uh, reaching out at this point in time uh, looking for uh, large swaths of new pavement or the resurfacing of the roads. The only thing that uh, the people that had asked for were the potholes that caused damage to vehicles for them to be attended to. So when we talk right now on on today's date and, um, you know, heading towards the middle of September, we got... 20 to 25 kilometers of Route 235 that have very destructive potholes remaining. I've asked on two or three occasions as to if we're prioritizing major routes 
you know, with speed of 80 kilometers per hour posted. And we've got these potholes of which are causing vehicles damage. And they're aware of it because I'll send in pictures. Residents are communicating with them. Um, the, the transportation infrastructure adjuster will send pictures. Uh, the latest one was a gentleman for Torbay who wrote me. And I immediately sent it on to the, to the department uh, on August the 18th at about 8 p.m., which, again, now, when we get late in the year, it, it gets darker, of course, uh, sooner. And when you travel um, without light on these roads or without daylight, then uh, you increase the chances of hitting one of these potholes. So he struck one in his 2018 Toyota LE, hit a large hole, and that was about one, he reports, one kilometer east of the turnoff to Tickle Cove uh, open hall intersection. Anyway, over $200 worth of damage. He, he supplied three quotes to the department and looking for reimbursement. I haven't heard back. I'm not sure if he has heard back or not, but I asked him to let me know if he did. I presented three petitions in the House of Assembly how the government does not have any liability for these holes that remain in the road and especially in these major uh, routes that we've got. So we promote tourism. We've got business owners that want to extend our tourism season, you know. Um, so we've got all that occurring. We provide, I think, some good economic uh, return to the province as a result of tourism uh, in there. But we've got these holes on the major routes that still um, exist today. And remember now, we're not talking about money or I'm not referencing pouring more money into it. I just think organizationally, we've got to do a better job on having these potholes. I contend that before July starts, before we roll into July, we ought not to have any major potholes that would cause destruction on these two major routes. And I don't think that's uh, too lofty of, uh, of an initiative or a goal to have. Fair enough. I mean, every time we talk about the roads, uh, inevitably, I'll get a picture of the road to Lassie. I'll get a picture of the road to Harbour Breton. I'll get a picture of the road to Terranova because there's just so many areas that are in dire need of attention. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Craig. Thanks for the call. Okay. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's Craig Party, the PC member for Bonavista. Let's go. Line number three, Arbid, you're on the air. Yeah. Oh, hi. Uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, my name is uh, Arpit. I live in St. John's. Uh, I just wanted to just bring some consumer awareness. Uh, I hope I can uh, just talk for a minute or two about it. Go right ahead. Uh, so, uh, uh, like, I'm not going to name something, though. Uh, it's just an uh, experience with a reputable garage yesterday where I had an uh, appointment for my truck for, uh, you know, under warranty, have look. Uh, uh, brake rotors in the rear because there was some squeaky noise coming and I was told, you know, within two years, if you have some issues, doesn't hurt, you know, you can have it looked. So I, I did that and um, I was told on the phone that, you know, it would be nice to have the rear calipers change and I spent a few minutes because uh, I know the work, how to, uh, my previous car, you know, I used to change them myself though, since I uh, since I was there, I was like, doesn't hurt to uh, uh, get it done there. Since they said, even though in my gut it said like, you know, I, I don't need it though. With the winter coming and all, I was like, it's better safe. So, uh, anyways, uh, the uh, I was quoted uh, five hundred eighty-eight 
dollars and my conversation was like okay so you will put new calipers on the back and i even said you know uh, what about the core charge because if you buy yourself you know you and if you don't bring the old one back you have to give core so just to be make sure they did not do any clerical uh, error or something uh, anyways um uh, uh, having loyalty and uh, full trust i paid the 588 dollars and uh, i was leaving i was like you know be nice to uh, look at the new caliper especially where we start getting rust though uh, they only uh, they didn't even change on one side uh, just uh, other side they only changed like the top part of the caliper partially and uh, that's like two bolts i i know it's a bit of work and they charged me two and a half hours labor and when i question uh, you know i didn't threat anyone abuse uh, try to get some justification cuz uh, it was uh, traumatized to you know and i tried to explain this is what the conversation was uh, though i wasn't allowed to speak to the person who we had conversation it was other person no apology and um, just try to make me feel down and i was told i'm no more welcome here again and um so uh, this truck i have um i would not be able to buy this brand again in future because i'm not welcome again when the time comes and i've saved money to buy another i am not welcome there again so you're you're unwelcome you're not welcome back to a garage because you asked about the work they did at the garage yeah and What? uh wow. and uh i was uh, you know um i i am an immigrant here though i've been here 12 years you know i, I love living here even though the weather can be you know the people like there's always positive things and i love here you know i still you know like living here like this is my home so uh, though um, i i felt really uh, helpless there you know it's not about i'm trying to um, you know like uh, trying to um, rant like i i just want to bring awareness cuz uh, like you know um, i hope their business to always do well though you know it's something about ethic being ethical and uh, truthful and i was like you know uh, like how how can you uh, have proof for something when it's a verbal agreement right so i and um, it's just like you know the trauma you get from it like a uh, physical mental like like all night i i could not sleep and uh, like i couldn't even focus work i had to call in sick just to calm down you know so i i just wanted to bring this awareness that you know if someone is going to go to uh, a garage to get work done uh, be more uh, ask more questions or have it in written or something or be more clear because uh, uh, you know uh, $588 for a half caliper change is uh, is kind of uh, you know it's i think it's a rip off cuz for same caliper you can buy from uh, some uh, parts place for like $135 plus tax you know so mm-hmm. so that's all i wanted to uh, bring awareness about like uh, you know that if anyone goes through this situation uh, you know there is a better bureau business ombudsman to reach out it it may not make a big impact though Uh, at least uh, you know raise a bit of voice because especially with you know 
all the inflation and everything expensive and like for example the sugar tax on the go like uh, you know like like um, it's it's sad you know that because uh, all these places you know uh, they always have work and uh, if you like I have friends who are looking to buy vehicle and you you uh, you know you have to wait like six months to be able to have the new vehicle right so mm-hmm. like the business is booming though you know for small things like this uh, it should be more honest to the consumer right so that's all i had to say today well i mean the way we get treated as customers will inevitably dictate how we spend our money you can also file a complaint with the consumer affairs which is at the department uh, the digital government service nl so if you want to formalize it through that avenue that's also there yeah, yeah, I'll do that because uh, I have all the proof and timeline and everything and, um, you know, because uh, the way I was told I'm not welcome here again ever is, uh, like, you know, my, the thing is, like, uh, a brand of truck, which I was uh, happy using it, and I was, like, you know, after four or five years, I would like to save up and buy a new one. Like I'm like, uh, even if I love love the brand, if this is the service I'm going to get, like I I can't own that brand because uh, how how can you you know it's just a new fear unlocked you know like like I'm scared to ever own this brand again in future. So I mean, I understand people who buy new vehicles every three years and have warranty on the go. Like they might be treated better though. Uh, anyways, uh, that's all I have to say. So I appreciate uh, you know everyone listening and um, letting me speak about this. Just very quickly, Arvid, where did you emigrate from? Uh, I came um, from um, uh, North East India. I went to uh, Memorial. I came in 2010. I, I studied at Memorial University here, and uh, like uh, I just had like a bag of suitcase, no knowledge, just move here and. Uh, I, I loved uh, living here because of the hikes and nature. And, you know, if you look mainland, uh, it's getting more uh, busier, crowded. Like the Newfoundland still have that cool vibe, you know, like which uh, I had when I came here. And, um, you know, uh, overall people are much nicer and uh, it's a beautiful place to live, right? So, um, so that's why I decided to, you know, settle down here. So, yeah. Well, we're glad you did, and I appreciate your time this morning, Arvid. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. All right. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, uh, Larry's in the queue. He wants to talk about they still need a teacher on Change Island. Then there's some ATV issues we're going to discuss with Jim out in Whitburn. And then someone would like to pass along some condolences to the Lester family and the loss of Juanita. Lester, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello? What did I click here? Oh, Dave, did I click the wrong line? Okay, let's go to line number two. Let's try that again. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. I believe that's me. I believe that might be you. Okay, yeah, according to your lineup, I think I was going to be third, but I'll go with it. Are you good with it? Well, I got gotcha. you. Okay, good. Uh, I wanted to uh, uh, to pass on my condolences, and uh, I wanted to inform VOCM and yourself and the listening audience, especially in the Kilbride and the Goulds, the whole farming community over there, that the the biggest matriarch, the the legend of all the Lesters, passed away yesterday morning at Kenny's Pond. I'm not sure of her age. I think she's close to 90. Mrs. Juanita Lester passed away at Kenny's Pond, and she became best friends with my mom, who uh, 
who lives across, who stays across the hall in Kenny's apartment, right on the second floor, in full care. And they shared many stories. And they sat on the beds together. And she is going to be greatly missed. And she is one of the biggest names in farming in the Newfoundland community. And she's from a family of farming. And the great Juanita Lester has passed away. And I feel sad for the Lester family. And I feel sad for my mom. Because my mom had... Miss is going to miss a really fantastic lady. And what a lady she was, Patty. i got to tell you that she sang in the choir at St. Mary's. She was the head of the Women's Institute of Olive Newfoundland for many years. She was renowned. She was respected at Kenny's Pond. She sang out there. She brought the building alive. And she's going to be sadly missed. And I'll tell you what. She was known to visit the farmer's market on tops of the road with two sheep in the front of the truck and a load of turnips in the back. What a woman. Unbelievable. I just wanted to inform you, the newsroom, your producer, and the listening public that the great Mrs. Juanita Lester has passed away, and I want to pass my happiness, sadness, and all of it on behalf of my mom and the listening community that what a farming icon has passed away. Unbelievable. And I want to end on this. Okay. Uh, unless you want to say something. She was not in favor. She was not in favor of shooting the moose on farm property. She told my mom, if you know what I'm referring to. I do. The people talk about the, what they call the nuisance animal. Okay, she was not. She said, let him eat the cabbage. She didn't. She cared what she said. They're beautiful animals. And she told my mom. And she's been bedridden for the last few months. And she's slowly gone downhill with Alzheimer's or dementia. I don't know the difference. Anyway, she's going to be greatly missed. She's the matriarch. According to Fred Flintstone, the grand pooba of all the Lesters has passed away. What an icon. I appreciate the call and the heads up. I had not heard this news. And I'm sorry for your loss and certainly your mother's and our condolences go out to the Lester family and Juanita's friends. Thank you for making time okay. for the show this morning. I'm not, I'm not aware of the funeral arrangements or anything. Oh, we'll, we'll find out that kind of stuff. Right. No worries. I want to let you know that I wanted to tell you that I'm not, I don't know what the arrangements are, so I can't tell you, but I want to let the farming community and the listening public know that what a tremendous loss for the farming community, the history of all the listeners. That generation is now gone. She's the last one in that generation. And she was really good friends with my mom at Kenny's Pond, and they became closer. Understood. And what a matriarch, uh, Patty. Well, it's a sad loss, obviously, uh, for you yep. and for, I would imagine for many others. I'm off to the news, but I appreciate yep. you giving us this information, as sad as it is. Thank okay, you. Thank you for your time. Take good care. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. So, obviously, a loss for the Lester family. Uh, let's see. Appreciate the patience of Jim and Larry. They're in the queue, and then we're speaking with you right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. And welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Jim, you're on the air. Okay. Good morning, Bill. Mr. Uh, Bill Rowe? Hello. Hello, Jim. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How about you? That's good. Were you looking for Bill yeah. Rowe? 
I was looking for this open line, right? This is open line. My name is Patty. Your name is Jim. Go right ahead. Morning, Patty. Morning so, first of all, before we get going on the uh, ATVs here and Whitburn, the issue we got, I'd like to say, uh, send out thoughts and prayers to the, the families of the choir in Combo Chance last week there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, uh, we're having a big issue with the ATVs here in Whitburn, especially on the weekends. Uh, there the other night, we had a little incident there Sunday night with the ATV rollover up by the, the fire department. And usually it's on the weekends that we're having these struggles with these same group, four or five individuals that's coming into town like nine or ten o'clock at night. And they're usually on the go till eleven or you know, eleven o'clock midnight. So uh I've seen them gathered up there by the train station there uh Sunday night and there was two or three and then so I went down and had a little chat with them and and you know, let them know that what they were doing was wrong, that they're gonna eventually hurt somebody or hurt themselves. So what were they doing? Just roaring around? What? No, they're going through it. Look, our little town here, like, I don't know, 11 or 1,200 people here. Uh, these little streets are designed. They're, they're narrow streets. Uh, a lot of speed signs. The limits there is 30 kilometers an hour, especially where I live. It's 30 kilometer hour zone. And, uh, like, they're, they're zooming past their houses here, like 80, 90 excessive speeds on the back wheels, you know? And... Well, God, like I said, this, you know, these streets are only designed for 30 kilometers an hour. But you get an ATV, like a bunch of them going up there, like, you know, four or five. And the same group that, been, you know, is ongoing all summer with them. And they're usually coming in here on the weekends. And they're, you know, they're crucifying the town. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're high rates of speed and, you know, up through the, up to our streets. And, and like I said, we, we got a railway bit there. You know, a railway track. I, I think every community loved to have it going through their town. But... For some reason, they decided to use our, our, our town streets to go drag racing on. And, like, you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the night, we, there's still kids out on the road. We've got a lot of seniors that's out walking their dogs and their animals. And these ATVs are not designed for pavement. It only takes one little movement on that, and you're gone. You know, so you probably drove an ATV yourself. You know how hard it is to steer on, on asphalt. Well, the tires are simply not made for asphalt, number one. Uh, so you say they come into your community. Come in from where? Well, uh, uh, the other night, actually, I was up to a lady's party. There. They had a 90th birthday party for us, so I made a, a made appearance up and, uh, you know, wish her happy birthday and stuff. But uh, So anyway, I came home there, uh, and I sat down on the patio and had a, had a cold beer, and, uh, and about 12 o'clock, I noticed they're heading back towards Ocean Town. Oh, okay. So, so I'm cabin country. Where going. Now, I'm not saying they're from Ocean but that's the, the vicinity that they were, the direction that they were heading in, right? And, you know, the, we have this uh, rare its head in a variety of communities. You know, some, like I, I'm familiar with Whitburn and the way the streets are designed and stuff, and they're absolutely not geared towards going 90 kilometers an hour on an ATV. That's one thing for sure. And, of course, if you don't have much in the way of a police presence, then there's nothing to stop them. Well, yes, I agree with that, but like I said, we, I know like our resources regards to the RCP, I know they tried their best. So I worked with the RCP over previous years because I'm, I was a first responder for almost 23 years, and I worked side by side with a lot of these fellows because, like I said, we, we did respond to uh, or we, to a lot of uh, MVAs out on the Transcanada and whatnot and surrounding areas. But uh, I know these guys, I know they're trying their best, the RCP, they, you know, these. I guess it's like everywhere is downsizing and 
you know, and they got a big area to cover. The RCP in this area got a big sure. area to cover, so they, they can't be everywhere at once. So, uh, but I did call, uh, when I made the appearances go down the other night, I had a chat with these individuals down there. I actually I approached uh, a guy and a girl on the sobby side. And I told them what they were doing was wrong, and, uh, you know, and they they said they wasn't here, but they're on videotape that they were going excessive speeds for a town the night before. So I said, whatever you're doing, you're doing wrong. And they said, you're going to get hurt or you're going to hurt somebody else, right? I said, what you're doing is wrong. The, the, the roads are not designed for the high speed you're doing. I said, there's a lot of hidden driveways here. Somebody could be backing up the driveway or, you know, it's only a matter of time that something's going to happen. And unfortunately, I made a call to 911 uh, at uh, 936 uh, Sunday night and reported this and anyway they were still doing it they were still going back and forth to road high rate of speed anyway 10.01 I made a second call to 911 and told them again that if somebody don't stop these people going back and forth to road take these bikes off the road there's somebody going to be killed while I had 911 on the phone I heard that I just live as a rock throw from the fire department there and I heard all the bikes stop the bikes all stop and anyway, when I was talking to the officer, he said, where are they going now? Well, I said, I just heard them going down the Far Hall Road, and the bikes are shut off. I said, they're up there. This, they shut off because one of these ATVs was after just rolling over. And no emergency room in Whitburn. Just to add to the conversation. Uh, yeah, so, you know, it becomes an issue. I don't know what anyone does to stop it. And the point you make about all those hidden driveways, I had family living in Whitburn, and they had exactly that. There was a big pine tree right at the end of their driveway that you could not see until that car was out in the road. And every time I came out of that driveway, I thought exactly that. No one can see me until the bumper is out in the road. Uh, appreciate exactly. the time, Jim. Anything else you want to say this morning? Now, now Bill, one more thing on that note. With these same group of individuals, I was talking to an older couple, they're probably a month or so. The same group of individuals, there's a salmon river out, you probably wear that too, where you're from Whitburn, there's Rocky River down where the kids go swimming at. It's a salmon river. Anyway, uh, probably a couple months ago, the same group in the nighttime was down driving in this river, which the kids go swimming in, and there's also a salmon river. And I was talking to this older man and gentleman uh, on a Sunday. They said he'd come in from CBS to do a bit of trout out in the pond there. And uh, they love fish, coming in fishing, get away. They bring the trailer down. It's nice and quiet. So anyway, uh, the night before, they said they went, they were there. They heard these bikes out in the river. They went out the next morning, and they were finding all kinds of dead fish on the shoreline. So, Bill, they're down there destroying the rivers. They're destroying the ponds, and they're coming in here. They're terrorizing. You know, this is a beautiful little town to live in. And it's quiet, and, and like you said, for five or six people to come in and, and terrorize this little town, it's, 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 not, it's not powerful, right? Of course not. Uh, Jim, I appreciate the time. Hopefully you get some relief from the ATV gang that comes in around Whipper. Okay, thank thanks you for this. Much, All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll say hello to Bill for you. No problem. Let's go line number five. Larry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Happy I'll try not to the bill. <laughs> no worries there. Go right ahead. What's on your mind, Larry? I, uh, I'm concerned, uh, I, I'd say like many of us, uh, about the school situation there. Um, I'll give you a rundown on it. There's, uh, we had uh, we got a grade, we got seven kids in our school. 
and uh, we had we were given a position and a half, and then all of a sudden, the night before school starts, the evening before school starts, the parents get a call telling them that uh, their their half position is gone, and along with that, their kids are uh, broken down into two groups, and. Uh, some of them are going to be going to school in the morning for two hours, and the other group is going to go to school in the evening for two hours in the afternoon. Now, I don't know how there's going to be uh, much learning done there. Uh, I spent all day in school for five days a week, and I, I guarantee you, uh, <laughs> it like to me you need more than two hours a day in school to learn to learn much, you know. So there's only seven students in the school on Change Island. Do you happen to know, like, what grades they cover? Is it all the way, like, through kindergarten, through grade nine, just different grades, or what can you tell us? From K to 12. From K to 12. Yeah. Okay, so just so I understand exactly what you were saying, so you had assigned 1.5 teaching positions and lost the 0.5. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, we're being told that uh, uh, this position... Uh, Apparently, the person uh, got a better offer uh, on Fogo Island as principal. Uh, and that's fine, but uh, uh, my question is, are teachers so scarce as that in Newfoundland? Or is this just another ploy or uh, tactic to drive and ruin these small communities? I mean... But who, who would do that, though, is what would be my question, Larry, because if, like... The, there's teacher vacancies uh, in different parts of the province. I read a story from one of the schools in Nain the other day. They were still trying to fill seven positions. Do you think it's more a case of teachers might not want to work in smaller rural places, especially, to say, for instance, relying on a ferry service? Or do you think it's a larger orchestration by some other entity, government or the district? Because the jobs are put up, people apply for them, or they don't. So did you lose the point five, or the point five wasn't taken away? It's just you lost the person that had applied for it and was given the point five, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. But you know, like, it, it it creates you know it's it's uh, terrible in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, our the school is the one of the main things in your community. I mean, your school is, is everything to us. It is anyway, and. Uh, uh, well, like, I got two two reasons. There, I got two grandchildren there, and uh, I also see it as being a, a deterioration for people. Like we got lots of people now out there that uh, that work from home. We got some here already here on the island, and and the community, the town is is uh, working towards some of that stuff, right? So that if we can get even like at the beginning, well, we got we got one or two people here now that's actually doing that, right? But we got people to come here and bring two or three students. That increases your students all of a sudden from seven to ten or twelve or whatever. So that's our you know our way of looking at some of that stuff, and and we're working like on things like that. But uh, it makes it difficult for everything, and, and and then you got kids put in in different grades, right? I mean, you got a a grade. Uh, you got two students, one in uh, kindergarten and one in grade five, who will be in the one room. And and uh, the kindergarten student, God loves little Eric. We all know him. We know everybody around here. And he needs uh, hyper. And and the other student is my granddaughter, and she dearly loves him, and he can't stay away from her. So don't you see 
Paddles there? Of course. I mean, it's like other, whether it be post office, bank, or more importantly, a school. Without it, and with a fully staffed, appropriately staffed school, then that just makes another reason for a young family to say, well, I think I've got to leave. So I understand mm-hmm. the multiplier effect or how it impacts other areas of life. Because if I don't have a school to go to, then as a young family, I'm leaving. I just am. I mean, we've seen it in other communities, and every year there's a number of schools that are up for a vote as to whether or not they're going to remain schools or we're going to see kids bust out. It becomes much more challenging when you have a community service by a ferry. It's one thing to take a bus, quite another if we're making decisions to close a school on Change Island, because then what? What about all those children? All those families inevitably will leave. So I understand the concern, Larry, totally. Yeah, no, no. It, it, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's hard uh, when, especially like for, uh, well, I'll just take myself. I mean, I, I was born there and spent the last 45 years there and uh, been involved with most everything that's there. And when you see and understand a lot of things when you're, you know, 100% in a community and then your school is going down and going down and, and then uh, you're like, I had a son come home there five years ago and uh, he had two children. And they started the school there. Well, they were started in Ontario, but they came here. I mean, and they're they're just loving it. I mean, they're learning in leaps and bounds, and and uh, we're told that by the teachers. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're down to one teacher, and you got seven students, and they're all mixed up in different grades, and uh, you know, it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah, and I don't know how the government or the district manage it. If you, if someone doesn't apply for the job, then it becomes, I guess, impossible to fill that 0.5 position. Are they actively still looking to hire that person? Because I know there's some schools that are still interviewing teachers and trying to put them in place, and even though the first day of school is today. So do you happen to know if they're trying to fill that 0.5? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, they are. I mean, I'm being told they are anyway. Well, that's the good news, I guess. Hopefully there's a teacher out there that sees the upside in taking on a job on Change Island. I appreciate your time this morning, Larry. Yeah, thank you for taking my call, Patty. Have Anytime. a good day. All the same. Uh, same to you, pardon me. All right, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner, Michael Harvey, he joins us right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. As advertised, join us on line number one as the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. That's Michael Harvey. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Great to speak to you this morning, Patty. Happy to have you on. Thanks for making time for us. I read with great interest, and I've been following this for a long time because, you know, the whole concept of platitudes of accountability and transparency, we could secure a lot of that if there was legislation requiring the duty to document. It sounds very straightforward and self-explanatory. What exactly is duty to document, Michael? Well, the duty to document will be a legislative requirement for public bodies, in particular government, uh, to make an adequate record of the decisions that it makes. Now, uh, you know, I think many people in the province might be surprised to to find out that there is not a requirement in law to do this already, Uh, that if if the government was going to be making decisions, that it would do it in writing. Um, But indeed, it is not a legislative requirement uh, here in Newfoundland, Labrador, or for that matter, most other places. Um, British Columbia is the only province that actually has one. We do have a legislative requirement for government to have and public bodies to have records management systems. But absent from that is a requirement for it to make, uh, to put in those records management system an adequate record of their decisions. That's really critical to accountability. 
And this is not new. People will point to the Muskrat Falls inquiry and recommendations made by uh, Justice LeBlanc within six months to have this legislation come forward, but this is decades old. It goes back to the 90s when federal information uh, commissioners were recommending the exact same. Clyde Wells did a review of the last statutory review, that is, of the province's access to information regime, yet this does not come into effect, which is just mindless. And we know what the Muskrat Falls inquiry uh, revealed regarding the blatant dishonesty and the lack of information that was documented. There's a mention of even if the communication is done verbally, so how does that translate to, because it's one thing for me to grab a piece of paper and see who said what in an email thread or what have you, so is the suggestion that they'd have to go back with the the, the notes that they just compiled in their mind and put to the paper, or how does that happen? Well, I mean, this is this is the problem. I'll, I'll draw your attention. I mean, there's a lot of focus to, uh, you know, the, the decisions that were made during Muskrat Falls and, and then during the inquiry, Commissioner LeBlanc found there was a lack of adequate documentation. And then uh, you had officials that were, you know, saying, well, I don't clearly remember what happened in this meeting. Uh, and um, But, I mean, even uh, much smaller decisions. So I wrote a report in, in early uh, 2020 about the decision to uh, – decisions to hire and then rescind the contract of, uh, of a person that was working at the rooms. Um, that was uh, my report uh, 2007 uh, And I found there that um, you know the complainant in that report said there should be records that, that talk about the decision. Who made this decision to, uh, you know, to, the, related to the hiring and firing of this person? Uh, and the, the records just weren't there. There was inadequate records. Now, the problem that I have is I can... Um, help provide oversight of people's access to records that exist. But if the records don't exist, then there's nothing I can do about it. And we all the time find uh, complainants come to here and say, you know, uh, the government responded to my access request, but um, they say that there's no records. There should be records, shouldn't there? And I have to throw up my hands and say, well, it does seem that there should be records on this subject or that subject, but uh, there's nothing I can do about it because there is no legislation in place to actually require those records to exist. You know, even if there are requirements in the Management of Information Act, the fact of the matter is we've understood clearly that the, so many of these lack of documentation has led to gaps in knowing who knew what when and how the information was exchanged and consequently even if we just look at one mega project 13 plus billion dollars later we find out that even the government was kept out of the loop so you would imagine if I'm a government official if I'm a cabinet member I'm thinking this protects me this is not the other side. This is not going to make me uh, under a different level of scrutiny. This protects me. And I don't know, I've never understood why politicians think the other way because all they do is create a whip for their own tail. Well, you know, I, I agree, uh, and uh, now that you know, it will be complicated to implement a duty to document, uh, in the sense that uh, the the policy about how do you actually do the documentation, what actually needs to be kept, and what should be, uh, what shouldn't be kept, is, is complicated, and it need policies need to be developed within each government department and public body. Um, but the good news is that the office of the chief information officer has done a lot of work uh, to help uh, guide public bodies in what kind of document management they need to do. Really excellent work that actually, you know, many public bodies uh, and government departments have started to implement. But what really is necessary is a legislative imperative, the law, to say, 
you got to do this. It is the law. And moreover, one thing that's really necessary is oversight. Uh, if the government – if they passed a, a law that said, okay, now government departments have a duty to document and there was no oversight, no independent oversight from, for example, my office, uh, then the, the departments could just say, yeah, we have a duty to document and we've done it properly. Just trust us. We have. And uh, assurances like that are not enough. Uh, trust in government is built on effective oversight, uh, and uh, and so a duty, to, a legislative duty to document, not only needs um, that policy development done, but it also needs effective oversight. Fair point, uh, and we'll see if they will come through with following up on these recommendations, which are so, just so critical. If the province is going to continue to quasi rely on mega projects, man, we can't get it as wrong as we did with that hydro development. Uh, a couple of other quick ones I want to touch base with you, uh, Michael, before we let you go. I've when the Rothschild report was commissioned, you know, people will talk about whether or not it's reasonable to spend five million dollars to talk about things that we should be able to evaluate in house. I can't remember your position. I think initially you chided the uh, Minister of Finance for not turning over the document to the public, but then I think you said that it was probably the right thing to not to to withhold the document. Where were we on Rothschild? I'm trying to recall. Sure. Yeah. So when uh, when they the government first got the Rothschild report, they um, uh, they announced that yeah they were going to hold it back in its entirety because of commercial sensibilities, and that's that's what uh, the Deputy Premier and Minister of Finance said uh, first. And, and so um, when an access request came in, um, you know, my, my response at the time was if, if we got an access request about that, then we review it. And if they applied that the exception in the act that allows them to hold back certain information for really it's not so much commercial sensitivities as, as it would be harm to the government. So uh, and that's a, a certain section of our act that if there's a financial harm to the government, then they're, they're allowed to, to hold back the information. We, we don't want to hobble ourselves. Right. We don't want we don't want to hurt ourselves by by putting that sensitive information out there that that will disadvantage ourselves. And so I said, yeah, well, I'll review the I'll review the document, and and if that's the case, and then, then uh, you know I I would uh, review redactions or you know uh, information withheld to protect that type of information, and then other information could be withheld. So when we did ultimately get an access request, however, what the government then claimed was that yeah yeah there are parts of it that are are sensitive sensitive in that regard that could be financially harmful to the government but we want to withhold the whole thing because it's a cabinet document and and so that was a that's a bit of a different story that was the first time they'd said that and so uh i uh, i needed to look at it and understand uh how it was a cabinet document and um and that's a little bit more complicated than it might seem because there are different types of cabinet documents and there's different reasons why something why the cabinet document exception may be made and when but when it is made uh depending on how it's made the whole document has to be withheld and so i needed to see it and, and understand what it was and I did look at it and and I can say uh, that um, that it this whole document should not be released into the public domain. Um, uh, it uh, it would be harmful to the financial interests of the province uh, to release this document. Now, listen. Does the government do, do the people of the province have a right to uh, to know what decisions are being uh, made? There will 
the government will not be able to implement uh, an, a number of the recommendations in that report uh, without, you know, going to the House of Assembly. So there will be a, a point at which there will be public debate on, on these issues. Mm-hmm. And, and the government will likely have to do, for certain of the recommendations, will have to do the kind of broad public engagement it does on other topics. So the time will come for there to be public uh, access to uh, certain of the information in the appropriate form, and the government will be accountable for how it does that. But for this particular report, uh, I do, you know, and this is a kind of independent oversight that I provide from a nonpartisan perspective, I can say, I looked at it, and I, in this instance, I agree with them. This this document is a cabinet document, and it would be uh, harmful to release it. And I think for members of the general public, just telling me it's a cabinet document is akin to just telling me that there's a, a client solicitor privilege that has to be protected when someone should be able to evaluate whether or not that's an appropriate tag to assign to a document. Just, just a, a specific question about Rothschild. If well, let's just take the NLC. If Rothschild recommended divesting government interest in the NLC, whatever that looks like, in part or in full. Eventually, they're going to have to go to the market to see if anybody's interested in any facet of the NLC. Consequently, the very first question is, was this recommended by Rothschild? So we're going to find that out. So I guess your commentary just means that it's just a matter of time before we get some of the 100,000-foot level uh, understanding of what Rothschild obviously must have said. Yeah, well, and there's, there'd have to be legislative changes, too. Okay. Um, to, uh, uh, and so a number of different steps in any of these, these are major policy decisions. Uh, so a number of different steps will be required, many of them involving the House Assembly and, and otherwise. So, uh, But this particular report, uh, and I think, you know, it's quite clear, it's been clearly in the public domain, what was asked for in this report was a evaluation of a variety of different kind of assets. Um, that kind of valuation and the way that it was done and the kind of information that's in it, uh, it really uh, it, it would be harmful because of the kind of information that rolled forward to, to Cabinet on the, in this instance. I always appreciate the time, Michael. Thanks very much. It's my pleasure, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. It's Michael Harvey. He's the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. All right. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, I don't know if you've seen the pictures of what were the murals adorning the walls of the Donald C. Jameson Academy in Bjorn. Two in particular that depicted some Greek Olympians. Former principal at that particular school and Olympic weightlifter Bert Squires joins us right after the break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three and say good morning to the former principal at the Donald C. Jameson Academy, Olympic weightlifter Bert Squires on three. Morning, Bert. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How you doing? Doing great, sir. How about you? Well, I wanted to say top shelf, but I thought you might beat me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment. But before we get to it, like, if anyone had ever been in the gym at Donald C. Jameson or have even seen the pictures of the murals, it was just so different and unique. It had the wow effect that I think you referred to it. Uh-huh. And now institutional gray. Before we get into the tragedy of painting over it, how did the murals come to be? Well, it, it's um, I went to Jameson in 1993 we just left 
seven years in the Arctic, which was great, and I've seen a lot of art um, in the Arctic. Um, one thing about Jameson that kind of, um, uh, I can't say, it, yes, it did bother me. It, it was pretty bland, the institutional colors and whatnot. And, of course, the gym. Now, I'll, the gym is where I'm most comfortable. You know, I've spent uh, most of my life, if not working full-time in the gym, I would be in, in, in administration and spent a, t- a tremendous amount of time in the gym. But the gym looked terrible. The floor hadn't been touched since the uh, the school was put there. The wall's terrible. So, um, 93, 94, so this guy by the name of Rod Beck, substitute teacher, appeared in my office door, welcomed him in. I knew he was in art, okay? So he sat down and just had a little chat, and I was very impressed by some of the things he, he talked about and, and his things that he'd done. So I said, Rod, would you be interested, now we were the Jameson Jaguars, in doing a little bit of work for us in the gym? And he said, oh yeah, sure. And my first thought was, okay, I'd like to have a giant um, Jaguar. And we went in, he looked at it, sized it up, put this gorgeous giant a Jaguar. We're talking 20 feet high, okay? And that one was the, the typical traditional color of the Jaguar, you know, the orange, the yellow. Once he had that one done, I'm not sure if it was my idea or his, let's do the other one. That's Pantera Anka is the name of the Jaguars, and they come in different colors. He painted a gorgeous black with blue accents in the bottom of the gym, in the same wall, same wall. And that turned out great. Now, it was his idea. You know what we should do? Paint a jungle scene. And I said, right on, good stuff. So that was that one wall, and it was, you walked in the gym, oh, man, this was nice. So then, uh, now, you got to think about, this is a full-size large gym. Now, you paint a gym with several brushes, neither one any bigger than two inches, and you got yourself a massive job. So just think about the time frame. So the next thing I thought of, in the bottom of the gym, now given the 93-94 time frame with the fishery and crisis and everything else about Port Newfoundland, I said, I want a scene down there depicting the culture of the area. So... What he would do, same way with with the cats, he would come into my office and he'd have drawings done and thoughts done as what we would put there. And I would, you know, most of the time I agreed with him 100%, except for the – now, that was called port fiction, by the way. And I said – around the, 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 the cliffs there. I said, I want you to paint a schooner there. I don't think he wanted to do that, but <laughs> I convinced him and he did it. So that came out absolutely brilliant, brilliant colors. You, you, got, you, you, you have to imagine these colors in that gym were startling, brilliant. They, they you know, just awesome. So then, uh, and no, don't forget, we're from 93, you know, sorry, well, he started in 94. We're in the 95. Then 96, he came up with this idea where I had been in the Olympics, and he wanted to do some kind of a mural depicting sport, athletics, the Olympics, and whatnot. So again, he would come in my office, and he would draw certain figures and what he wanted to put there and whatnot. And in that one, I did not play any role whatsoever in deciding what to put there. It was entirely his idea. Now, I loved it. Got to say, I loved it. Now, that that one was entitled uh, The Lesson. Okay. Now, the gym floor hadn't been touched, so we got out the gym floor. Now, it's a floating hardwood floor, the best of floors, okay? 
And we had that refinished, and in the center of that, with some help with my daughter, who's quite an artist in her own right, we painted a, a jaguar head there. So that's the history of it, and I'm going to guarantee you that gym is startling. We also planted trees, and I put in uh, four soccer nets, dug the holes myself out in the playing fields. So we brighten up the whole school. So there's the, there's where, where it started, and we know where it ended. Yeah, it ended uh, covered with institutional gray. I mean, the yeah. Greek Olympians, one with the javelin, one with the discus. Yeah. You know, I don't know if anyone complained about the fact they're only wearing a loincloth, which is what they wore uh, at the time. But the whole concept of people couldn't see the ball coming. During your time, <laughs> and every student you ever saw go into gym class, whether it be volleyball or dodgeball or crazy baseball, did yeah. anyone ever say, I can't see the ball? I went in the gym every single morning, again, comfort zone, in the gym. We had a lot of energetic kids, a lot of them boys, um, I have to admit, and um, I would have drop-in sports in the morning. Every single lunch hour for 17 years, I went in the gym. A group dropped in. Some of the smaller kids would come in and watch. It was fantastic. So I spent a huge amount of time in that gym, plus after school at times. Nobody ever seen, uh, missed the ball, missed the record, or anything else, a shuttlecock, because of that. I call that pure, unadulterated, fabricated nonsense. All right, you're in the hockey. Ever watch any hockey games on TV with the boards these days? They're not white anymore. They're full of of advertisements and whatnot. And I'll tell you, I don't see any of the players having any trouble picking up the black puck against that background. Nonsense. Utter nonsense. Yeah, no one stops to look at, admire the home hardware logo or nothing. It's just just there. Uh, Just before we run out of time, Burton, I really appreciate you making time for us this morning. You're on a pretty short list. Uh, Robert Fowler, uh, Eric McKenzie Robertson, Harry Watson, Ferd Hayward, Alex Oakley, Paul McCloy, Frankie Humber, Maria Maunder, Phil Graham, the Guju Boys, Caitlin Osmond, and you, the Newfoundlanders who have participated in the Olympics. I want to go back to 1980. You had qualified to participate in the Olympic Games in Moscow, and of course, the boycott happened. Where was your heart? It must have just sank knowing that you don't get many chances to compete in the Olympic Games. Bring us back to 1980 in the boycott. Um, well, I believe I was the, only the third person from Newfoundland to represent Canada. And at the time, I mean, I was pretty young and everything. To me, personally, that was a big, big, big deal. And we heard rumors of it. And all of us, you know, we were training every single day of the week, sometimes two and three times a day. And we heard these rumors. And we, nah, that's foolish. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. And then it kind of picked up a bit of, you know, steam, so to speak, in that this started to become real. And once it did happen, and they brought us up to Toronto with the Royal York and Jerry Parker. No, I can't remember half the places we went. I think I might be in Montreal. But anyway, uh, we went, God, no, we were... um, I want to say a word, but I, I, I won't. We were perturbed off. I think that's more appropriate, to put it mild. So after that, I mean, we were just lost in, in, in la-la land somewhere. Don't forget, it took years to make the Olympics. Now, an Olympic weightlifting is highly technical. It, it is extremely demanding on the body and the mind. And lots of my times in my early years were spent in the basement, totally alone, you know, and to have that just simply taken away from me was like devastating. But then in, in short order, I was still pretty young. So 1984 was on the horizon. 
And I said, okay, I'm going to give her a shot for that. And we did. Went through there, the Olympics in Los Angeles. Did my best. Um, right on the on the Canadian records and that, and which were mine. And um, was finished fifth there and was super pleased. I had the crowd going with me every lift uh, I did and, and every shout and yell and every fist pump they were. It was, that was fantastic. So I was glad that I did go for the second one, but I never ever forgive the what happened with the uh, with the 1980 Olympics. Yeah, and of course that's based on the Soviet Union's uh, yes. invasion of Afghanistan, which was back yeah. in the 70s. I think 1979 was the initial yeah. invasion. That's I've right. seen a report that you uh, participated in the 84 games in Sarajevo, but no, it was in, Lo- oh, no, in Los Angeles, right. and yeah. finished in fifth in the 105 uh, kilogram category. Obviously, extraordinary memories, and I'm glad you shared them with us this morning. Bert, great to have you on. Perfect. And I have one more thought I want to say about the murals. Okay, somebody is responsible for having that removed. The outcry from people who are disgusted with that is growing by the day. There's a tangled web you you weave when you practice to deceive. People at home want some answers as to who, why, and what are you going to do about it now? Are you leaving that wall with about six or seven feet on the top still there? Come on, someone needs to answer this. Anyway, Patty, top shelf, have a good day. Nice talking to you. You too, Bert. All the best. Okay. Goodbye. For Squires, former principal out at Donald C. Jameson Academy in Buren, I mean, the story about the murals, I know it's not the be-all and end-all, and there's issues inside the K-12 system, but that's a real loss. What a shame. They were gorgeous. They really, truly were. I've been in that room. I've been in that gym. And there's a pretty short list of Olympians from this province, and Bert Squires, one of them. Imagine being qualified for the Moscow Games, and it's pulled away from you. You know, that was the stage show of that boycott. Canada joined suit, but got to participate in Los Angeles, 1984. Cool. Uh, break time, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, top of the board, line number one, caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello there. Oh, so, okay, I'm on. I didn't know. Um, just a moment, Patty, it sounds good program. Personally, earlier, talking about milk, 4 to $5, two liters. I recommend they check around, especially to the pharmacy, that has the 20% off for seniors on Thursdays. Uh, last Thursday, regular 3.89 for two liters, 80, 80 cents off, two liters, three dollars and nine cents. Last Thursday. Oh, there's places to find a, a deal on milk. I buy it at a gas station in my neighborhood because it's the cheapest option within, you know, a couple of kilometers anyway of my home. So, yeah, look around for it because, you know, some places like a pharmacy or a gas station, they use it as a loss leader. You know, make very little on the milk, but when you're in, you buy something else. Yeah, well, I don't know if this is the last leader. It was regular 389, and you had to be over whatever, 65 or something to get to 20%. Okay. But it's 309 I paid, so... Um, it might be worth looking into. That's all. Uh, it's Thank a you. good tip for the listener. I appreciate you making time for the show. Okay. All the best. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. And, you know, I see people lumping in the price of milk with sugar tax kind of discourse, but, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador is one of many provinces that saw an increase in the price because the Dairy Association went to the commission, which manages supply management, which is how it dictates the price of dairy products. They were granted the permission to raise it by 2.5%, so it really had nothing to do with the government at all, not, not, not our provincial government anyway, just for clarification. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. 
I want to start off by saying I'm definitely not a professional. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, I'm not have nothing to do with children behavior. Me neither. But lately, uh, you know, the last few years, I've noticed uh, an increase in the number of children who've been I, I call it labeled uh, as being on the spectrum with all these different diagnoses, ADHD, and things like that. And I'm I'm starting to wonder, you know, if if all of these diagnoses are accurate. Um, you know, I just heard last week on VLCM um, back to school they were offering, uh, you know, counselors and, and social workers and stuff uh, to the children to to deal with the transition from summer to you know school days. And I thought to myself, there was none of that when I was on the go years ago. Um, but one of the things that bothers me the most is probably the fact that I've been in the presence of, of children, uh, you know, with their parents and stuff. And the parents are quick to discuss the child's diagnosis as if the child is not even there listening. Um, you know, they say, oh, Johnny or Mary is on the spectrum and uh, they're diagnosed with this and this. So this little child is hearing their parents telling, you know, other adults uh, about their diagnosis and you know I'm wondering if, if this could lead to their behavior thinking okay well mom says I'm on the spectrum so I can do this and I can do that and possibly get away with things that they, they would try to get away with if they weren't labeled that way. I think and, diagnosis is a very careful process now children in class know if someone's been diagnosed for one thing or another because there's I think it's called pathways they're on different curriculum and different type of opportunities for quiet times and different accommodations that have been made for people who maybe with sensory overloads and what have you. If there's a diagnosis where a child is so manipulative to say, oh, wait now, I have ADHD. What can I wonder what I can get away with now? Now, does that happen? Exactly. I have no earthly idea. Yeah. But I'm not saying that happens either, but I'm just trying to put myself in the mindset of the small child. I mean, you know, they're listening. I've seen it a lot. Um, you know, and the parents talk about their child as if they're not even there. So I'm thinking I've tried to put myself in the child's mindset, and I think to myself, gosh, maybe I, I do have this disorder or whatever. It, it's Again, I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, and, and they feel it could be a damper or a shroud over them thinking, okay, well, I obviously have a mental condition. And, you know, it could affect them for the rest of their lives. You know, if the parents are out there like, and you're talking to it about, you know, to your doctor or, or a friend. Make sure your child is not there listening. You know, it, it's you know, you and I wouldn't want another adult to go and, and talk about our diagnosis. You know, it could be a little bit embarrassing for the child. Who knows? But hmm. you know, that's something. That, but another thing I wanted to touch on quickly. Um, in the last few years, I've noticed too, uh, children in schools. You know, they're not being tested as we were in school. You know, tests are, are not being administered. Um, exams have been cut out. And I was talking to one teacher who who told me their reasoning behind it was uh, it adds extra stress to the child and saying that you can't uh, give a child a test because they're under a lot of stress and it doesn't give a, a clear indication of what that child knows. So how are these schools preparing the child for the real world? Uh, you know, and I'm thinking, again, this is just my own diagnosis, I'm thinking that a lot of children are, you know, going through stress and, and, and having to go to psychologists and stuff because they can't deal with the real world because they're being shrouded both by the school system and the parents at home. Yeah, there's something to that. You know, there are kids out there who have the, the helicopter parent and they're wrapped in bubble wrap and what have you. But I don't know the, I don't fully understand the rationale behind the way we test the children and what they've absorbed in the curriculum, what they actually understand. 
I don't know. I guess modern teaching has changed on a variety of fronts, but I'm really not so sure about the testing one. The other one that kind of got me was they did away with deadlines to pass in, for instance, your uh, your uh, book report or something. You know, get it to me when you see fit. That, I well, think, that, just makes no sense at all. The testing one, I'm kind of just oh, uh, torn sorry. with. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. My child, uh, back in 2020, um, hadn't submitted their uh, reports because they had so much time to do it. And then when COVID hit in March, uh, my child never had all of their um, uh, book reports submitted because they were given so much free time, you know, since September. Because I remember going and saying, you know, when when is this uh, uh, assignment due? Oh, we don't have to pass it until the end of the year. But in their case... The end of the year didn't come because school was shut down in March. So uh, their grades, you know, w- was affected greatly because of the fact that, uh, the, and I mean, again, that's my child's fault for not submitting them earlier. But, yeah, it, 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 there, I remember in school being under stress with exams and tests and, and uh, you know, just overall behavior. And uh, but that prepared me for my working career, because in, you know most of us have deadlines and things to to uh, follow. But with kids these days, like I, I don't know, it just seems like it, they're being dragged off to psychologists and being diagnosed. When you know, I, I think it's something that uh, many of them. Uh, I don't think there's any need for it. And they're having a hard time coping with the real world because they're being shrouded as as children and and students. Well, coping mechanisms are important for children and adults alike. I don't know about the diagnosis, whether or not there's a prevalence of misdiagnosis on those. I just don't really know what to say about that one. You know, the argument about preparation for the real world is that, you know, I don't, the the public exams were a nice measure to see where we are compared to other uh, jurisdictions, other provinces in the country. And that, that was used to be a grade 8 thing and a grade 12 thing. They've both kind of gone by the wayside. You know, to be, to figure out what the real world will demand of you, is it time enough for that when you visit post-secondary? I mean, not every child does that either. We know we have a lot of dropouts here. Because then, all of a sudden, in grade 12, there's a much different approach taken by your teacher, not only to evaluate what you know, but how you behave, and to give you one-on-one assistance versus when you get to post-secondary. You are very much on your own. You know, you can use your faculty advisor, and you may indeed have some great lecturers and professors, but it's way different. And they don't care if you're stressed up by doing a test. You, It's on the schedule. It's on the schedule, and you do it. So learning how to take a test is also an important educational skill. It was for me. It was the only way yeah. I got through school, uh, to be honest. Uh, I've got to take a break for the news. Would you like to add anything else very quickly? No, I totally agree with what you just said. And, again, like I said, you know, from kindergarten up till grade 12 is a good time to prepare kids for post-secondary. You know, that that's when it, all the... the you know, discipline should be instilled, like homework and curfews and... and now, homework's a different thing. I think we give kids too much homework. That's one thing for sure. Actually, uh, in my experience in the last two or three years, my child was in high school, there was very little homework because there was nothing to study for because there were no tests administered. Yeah. Most, most of what they had to do was in-class assignments, and that's uh, what their mark was based on. They're in-class, you know, very little homework was brought home. But again, that could be their fault for just not wanting to bring it home. I'm not blaming the teachers or the, or the schools. I'm just saying that it, it's a shame 
that all of this was cut out because kids are coming out of grade 12 in total shock for their post-secondary. And Some of them are, sure. Now, I don't yeah. know, exams I'm still a bit torn on. The diagnosis bit, I kind of leave that by the way, because I'm not a professional. I don't know if that's a, no. a rampant thing, and nor do I know if we should talk about a kid being embarrassed because they've had a certain diagnosis because we're doing the best we can for that not to be embarrassing, for that not to be something that holds them back, for that not to be something that finds them isolated in school, just like when we talk about adults with a mental health diagnosis. We talk about it, we acknowledge it because it's it's everywhere one in five canadians so yeah, I didn't anyway the exact diagnosis being embarrassed i mean the fact that you know there's two people talking about them okay. while they're present and as if they're not even in the room you know johnny or mary has this 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 and this you know but again it could be putting you know a preconceived idea in their head of their behavior i, I don't know if kids think like that quite but uh, i suppose every child is different and uh, I, and i'm not really quite sure how to respond to that but i'm late for the news but i appreciate your time Okay, take, take care. care. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, the testing bit is a different conversation than the diagnosis bit because I think we do the very best we can to diagnose children appropriately and early enough so that they can get whatever additional support they need. Let's take a break for the news. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go top of the board. Caller, line one, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi. I'm calling in response to that lady who said, obviously, she's not an expert about the kids with the autism and ADHD. It's very obvious she's not an expert or has anything to do with it. I do have a problem with her statements. Um, first of all, yes, we're getting more and more diagnoses because they're testing more than ever, which is obvious. Uh, the other thing is a lot of this is genetic. Newfoundland is a small gene pool. Of course, we have a high incidence of it. Statistically, we have a higher incidence than we do um, nationally. The other thing is, it's, these diagnoses are not done just willy-nilly, a, you know, GP. Like my son was diagnosed over eight years ago. It took over a year to get diagnosis with OT, speech, pediatricians, nurses, the whole thing involved. Currently, I get my daughter tested. I'm on year four of being tested, and we still don't have a diagnosis. I open t- openly talk about it in front of my kids because it's part of who they are and it's a part of what we have to adapt to. I, t- to, I explain to my son that his autism and ADHD is no different than him being blue-eyed and, and blonde. He, he's just part of the puzzle. I don't think we should go around talking about it because that creates, that, like not talking about it, that creates the stigma. We should talk about it more and more so we have an understanding. Us parents standing around talking about it is no different than what did you make for lunch today as to how are you coping with this incident. I think there should be more talking about it and more readily so my children when they go to school they don't have this insecurity and that they're weird and that there's something wrong with them. I think we should be talking more and more and to our kids. Age appropriate obviously. We've been talking to our kids very openly. There's nothing wrong with them. It's nothing bad. It's just that we sometimes we got to do things a little bit different. I give They have great insight on who they are and what's their triggers and how to cope with all that with the system this is not something that's willy-nilly that's decided by you know just random people there's lots of experts involved of course you know it is a struggle and like i i will not ever say do not talk
talk about it. For her to say, like, don't be... You, my children had this since they're born. They're born with this stuff. This conversation has been going on nonstop since the beginning of time. It's no different than me standing up, how did you totally train your son? It's no different. It has nothing. It's just parents trying to figure it out together. Because really, there is a lack of support here for, you know, in general, whatever. You only have each other to help each other out. I will not stop talking about my son in front of him. He has the best insight on his abilities and on abilities or whatever. And I also think the other children hearing is also an upside. It's a positive, you know, as opposed to thinking that, it, for yeah. instance, if it was me, uh, there's something wrong with me. I haven't been diagnosed. I just know there's something that's not, I'm not like my pals or something, just like the other students in the classroom. If they don't talk about it, they don't know what being on the spectrum means, because on the spectrum, for instance, if you've met someone with autism, you've met only one person, because the spectrum is yeah. wide and broad, and to know more about it makes it easier to navigate the classroom, to understand your pals, what they may need what the what pleases them what hurts them uh, whatever it is so that you could be a kinder gentler reasonable student and friend and classmate so i don't see the downside in talking about these things in fact we go to great lengths on this program to talk about it because if we don't then people just go around embarrassed and think there's something wrong with them and that's just and that's, that, not the case and that's my whole point I I, you don't want to create shame and these children i just ask like this be kind thing is a great statement but it's just a statement it's a, it's really what an action should be done sure you need to be more patient with these children They're, they'll do it they'll figure it out they just have a little unique way of doing things and stuff like that so like i, I had to call in because that lady just i got to be honest really infuriated <laughs> you just say that i can't be standing around talking about like we're in it together i was at walmart yesterday talking about the school system and uh, with a mom who's young like ch children got younger than me and i said to her like anytime like every school is different every kid is different but sometimes you learn a little trick of the trade here and there like you only have really each other to help each other out like it's a hard i like hard. what you said about kindness it, it's an act it's not just a word it's not just a slogan it's something that when acted upon makes it just easier for everyone and you know i i don't really understand folks who are perpetually unkind and angry and bitter it must be exhausting and so when we talk about things honestly and openly we remove some of those barriers i mean i don't know why people are willing to put up fences because it might make a good neighbor but it doesn't make a good classmate no and, and like my son now you know went today to grade nine very apprehensive he's had bullying issues and i'm not even exaggerating since kindergarten has been ongoing it's very frustrating and we talk about big con and the pink shirt t-shirt day and all that stuff and that's great and i don't deny the promotion but i'd rather see the action yeah. and promote the action rather than just wearing a pink t-shirt one day of the year but that's that's our personal bout but yeah i just had a call in today so <laughs> i look i understand your concerns i knew this would draw this type of reaction from many and i welcome whatever people want to bring to the show we're not certainly this is not about echo chamber we all agree with everything uttered by any caller or any person in the community so i'm i'm really glad you made time for us to tell us what you thought of it all thank you take good care you too all bye bye yeah, I mean, I think they're all different conversations, right? You know, testing and some of the research about modern-day testing and what we're actually understanding by changing the way we either teach and or test. You know, like, think about it, uh, people my age. When you went to school and you, for instance, in math, we simply memorized our times table. 
did that give us an understanding of how the answers were arrived at? I don't know. There's something to rote skill. Rote can make it, rote can make it uh, really easy for recall, possibly. But understanding what we're being taught, how it's being taught to us, how we can regurgitate whether or not we learned it and understood it, I guess there's just differences. Now, the one issue where uh, people can say I'm wrong, and that's perfectly fine with me, the deadline one bugs me. It just does. You know, we might not spend our adult life taking tests. Fine. But you'll spend a lot of your life on a deadline. A lot of it. So I've never understood. Look, I can accept the academic research regarding testing and stuff. No sweat. Because I'm not an educator. I'm willing to hear from those who are. But I still don't get the deadline business. You know, if your book report is due on Friday, it should be due on Friday. There's a lot of life skills and time management comes with being able to understand and to hit your deadlines. Because before long, regardless of who you are, there are deadlines. Like, even if it's outside the classroom and your soccer game is at 5.30, you got to be there for 5.30, or if the coach said 5 o'clock, it's a deadline. It's not a suggestion, right? If your book report is due, the book report is due. You know, we're just piling more work on teachers. Just imagine if everyone in the class said, you know what, that report i got to do? Eh, not doing that. I'll pass it in at the end of the school year. So now all of a sudden a teacher has, as opposed to, you know, scheduled times where they will set aside time to mark and read and grade papers... Now they just come in whenever, and then the question comes from mom or dad, hey, where's my child's grade on their book report? Oh, you mean the one that was three months late? I'll get to it. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Uh, oop, let's go. Line number three. Wanda, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. The lady that just called in, God bless her, because if it wasn't for parents like myself and her advocating and speaking and sticking together and being a voice for these children with autism, uh, we'd be in a lot sadder situation than we're in now. And for the lady who called in before her, I don't think she comprehends. What she should be asking is, number one, why are autism numbers so high right across Canada, but more so in Newfoundland? Where is it coming from? Is it environmental? Like, we should be doing research there. Not this cuddle mothers and bubble wrap people. Yes, I'm a bubble wrap mom, but I have a reason to be a bubble wrap mom. Like that lady who previously called in, my child's been bullied, my child's been hurt. He is vocal, but he does not express himself vocally. He has trouble speaking. Uh, He hardly talks at all, to be honest. So if he's hurt, he's not going to tell me. I have to learn from somebody else that someone hit him or he was picked on or something like that. And as for the diagnosis, in grade 8, you know he still was not fully diagnosed by the Newfoundland and Labrador Teachers Association, their autism worker. And two years later, we were still waiting to see where he was at mentally in order to help him. But at that time, I was told there's one lady who's doing 5,000 children here in Newfoundland. So can you imagine how long that would take for her to travel across the province and try to figure out what level these kids are at? 
Well, I mean, for starters, that's an unmanageable caseload. But uh, I thought the earlier caller, too, about just how many professionals get involved in, in eventual diagnosis is an important point. Because, unfortunately, far too often, there might be... A, a diagnosis that's too late because then all of a sudden what could have been uh, positive steps taken by for instance a speech pathologist or otherwise maybe we've missed uh, some of the time frame to really help that child adequately and timely so look all these things are important and I don't I really just dis- I completely disagree with the fact that we can't talk about them because if we don't my god everything that we don't talk about it just remains in the shadow status quo and if for me from where I sit that's been bad that's been really poor so to do anything but that sounds like an excellent idea Yes, before uh, COVID hit us, I was going four times a month for, I'd say, the past 15 years to the Janeway speech and language, occupational therapy, autism doctor, psychology. And, you know, he needed all those experts. He needed as much help as he could get because we lack so many other things in this province when it comes to support for these kids and everything else that you have to take advantage of whatever you can as a parent to help your child. Of course. 100%. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add before we run out of time this morning, Wanda? No, don't stop talking about autism. Make everyone aware. Tell your kids it's okay to play with kids with autism. Just be kind. That's all I have to say. Thanks for this. Thanks. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, David, which one should I go for the couple minutes we have before the newscast? Uh, I think I can see your fingers there. Okay, quick one before we get to the news. Line two, Eleanor, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Not too bad. How about you? I'm great, thanks. And a very happy first day of school to all those teachers and students and parents out there. A lot of excitement today, I'm sure. A full suite of emotions, I would imagine, throughout the school community. Absolutely, like usual. Yeah, for sure. Lots of ups and downs. And to add to all those ups and downs and all the excitement uh, for us today at Manuals River, it just happens to be the deadline for our uh, 50-50 Bobber Race Lottery that we have going online. It's one of the biggest fundraisers that we do all year. And I'm watching the numbers climb now. I know if you're like me, Patty, you tend to be a little bit last minute on things. And there's a few people that are probably in that boat. The the Bobber Race has been ongoing all summer. But uh, we're just really starting to see it snowball now and the momentum uh, kicking in. And the deadline is at midnight tonight, your very last chance to get in on this 50-50 jackpot, which at at the moment is just up over $78,000, which is a a nice prize, uh, closing in on $79,000. I think we can at least make it to eighty, dollars and I'm really hoping that before midnight tonight we can maybe even break $100,000. We did do that in the last two years. We had over $146,000 and on 135000 so I'm really hoping that'll be the case. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, bigger the prize, the, the bigger the smile, right? So uh, we know it's an important fundraiser for the work that you do at the Manuals River Interpretation Center, and midnight is the deadline if you want to get in on the 50-50. So what's the website where people can go and take care of it? 
If you have access to a computer and you have a mailing address within Newfoundland and Labrador, you are eligible to go to bobberrace5050.com to purchase your tickets before midnight tonight. And if you do not have the internet or, you know, you're not technical, um, you're more than welcome just to give us a call. You can call one seven zero nine eight three four two zero nine nine, and we'd be happy to ring you through online. Uh, that's no problem. The tickets, if you want to purchase them, you the more the merrier, really, because if you buy one, it's $25, but if you bundle your tickets, uh, you can get yourself a little bit of a deal, and you can get uh, three tickets for 65 tickets for 75 or even a bundle of 10 tickets for $100. So it's, it's uh, the more chances, the more tickets you buy, the more chances you have to win, and, you know, it, it, like you said, it does really help support all the work that we do. We're very focused on taking good care of our river, the river valley, the fossil site that we protect, and we do have um, the responsibility to care for that and we encourage the community to join in on that care by education um, and also a bit of recreation there when we have our trail system that it goes alongside the river. Appreciate so the time and good luck with it, Elnor. Okay, thank you so much, Patty, and happy first day to everybody and thank you to everyone who's already bought a ticket. We really appreciate your support. Good luck. Okay, there you go. It's Elnor from Annuals River Interpretation Center. Time for the news. When we come back, daycare, gas tax, the concept of an independent civilian-led police oversight body, all those and more. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go. Line 4, say good, for, uh, good morning to the independent member from Mount Pearl Southlands, Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How is morning? Not too bad, I suppose. You? Ah, oh, not too bad. Patty, before I get to my topic, I just want to certainly uh, just say that my thoughts and prayers are with the uh, the um, the workers who were involved in that very serious situation out in Combahant, uh, and uh, certainly as well with their uh, family, friends, and uh, co-workers. Very tragic situation for sure. Well, let's wish the six remaining uh, speedy physical recovery. We know that, you know, it's quite clear coming from the union that even some of the 30 people that were on site for the explosion on Friday, they were there with the tragedy in 1998 too. So you can just imagine what goes through some people's minds. It's obviously very real. Absolutely. And uh, and uh, it, that's why it's so important that we try to prevent accidents in the workplace because it's uh, can impact everybody, not just those directly involved, but those indirectly involved as well. So we wish them all the best for sure. Uh, I also just want to welcome back all the teachers and students, and uh, hopefully we'll have a successful uh, year back at school. Patty, um, I, I wanted to just uh, bring up the issue of uh, of childcare. Um, I've had a number of people reach out to me, certainly from uh, my district. Uh, this continues to be a, an issue. I know that uh, you know certainly not arguing with what's been done in terms of the uh, you know the uh, the twenty five dollar down to fifteen and going on to ten dollar uh, a day childcare. I, I think that's a, uh, you know a great initiative, uh, but. Um, and I know that, uh, you know, the government has also, uh, you know, tried to uh, make improvements to early childhood education in terms of uh, better remuneration. And I think they're working on some recruitment initiatives and so on. So, you know, I, I, I acknowledge everything that has been done, um, but um, there continues to be uh, an issue in terms of uh, availability of space. 
And, uh, you know, I know uh, when I brought this up in the House Assembly and, and we talked about it uh, on your show as well, uh, you know, a number of months ago, and, and the minister talked about the fact that, you know, the burden would, um, the pressure would, uh, would would be taken off somewhat when we started this junior kindergarten and so on, that that was going to free up spaces. And uh, I'm not sure if that's the case or not. Perhaps it did in the areas where that's being offered. I think there's a pilot project and there's maybe a half dozen schools or so uh, throughout the province uh, where that uh, program is in place on a pilot project basis. Well, the application process hasn't uh, even opened. Pardon me? The application process doesn't even open until tomorrow. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. So, you know, it it may have an impact in the the particular schools and so on where that's going to take place. Uh, but uh, certainly Mount Pearl and Southlands is not one of the areas where that will even be taking place. So it's not going to have any impact, certainly on the people of uh, my district. Perhaps it will in some of the areas where they're going to do it, not not in Mount Pearl, Southlands. So, uh, you know, I just want to put it out there, you know, once again, that, um, you know, that this is something that, uh, you know, the government needs to continue working on this, trying to free up spaces. I know that um, one of the people who reached out to me was a... Um, she was a doctor, actually, uh, and uh, indicated that, like in in her case, uh, she, you know, it's going to prevent her um, from uh, trying to get to work. It's going to pre- prevent a colleague of hers in the same boat and other healthcare professionals. And when we talk about the gaps we have in our, you know, uh, in our system with uh, with healthcare and and wait times and and not being able to get surgeries and procedures and so on. Uh, done in a timely fashion like a lot of that you know may be based on um, you know uh, physicians and so on but it's not just physicians it's also the availability of uh, of the other people who support that whether it be uh, nurses or other um, or or, or other uh, staff involved in the healthcare system so one of the things that was thrown out as a suggestion and I'm, I'm passing it along to the minister of course is you know, at the Confederation Building, as an example, there is a child care center there. There's one at Mon because these are large workplaces, uh, lots of employees. I think they have them over at uh, at uh, Hydro as well. So, you know, uh, perhaps a suggestion which would help, you know, uh, our health care workers in trying to keep them working and, and, and avoid them being off on so much leave in a lot of cases for these issues is possibly looking at having like a child care center or whatever set up at the health science center uh, as an example uh, is something that could be looked at to try to uh, alleviate that burden so that the healthcare professionals which we desperately need all disciplines um, it, it alleviates that burden so they can get to work and 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 obviously the more people we have working the less shortage and the less sick time and the less family days then that's going to improve wait times and so on for a lot of procedures so you know that was just one suggestion. As I said, I'm, I, I am forwarded. I have forwarded that to the minister. And if anyone has any other suggestions, I'm certainly willing to take them forward. But I know that it continues uh, access to childcare uh, continues to be a, an issue. It's fine to have affordable childcare, but that's only good for the people who can get the spaces. It does nothing for the people who can't get any spaces and it continues to be a problem people are scrambling i know one family that the uh the mother in this case has taken a leave of absence can't find child care for her infant uh, so yeah people um just think about all the vacation time and sick time and holiday time that people took to cover off what was the, the fits and starts of the pandemic education world last year anyway paul appreciate the time i'm going to get another call on for the break 
Thank you, Patty. All the very best. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, line one. Al, you're on the air. Good morning. Patty, how are you doing, boys? Not too bad. No problem. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm calling this morning, Patty, but I listened to a lady last week who was on your line and she had a question, and the way she asked us really made me uh, think about it. She said, uh, Patty, I'd like to know one thing. Where in the name of God is all our federal gas tax money going to for the roads, to ho- like our roads are in a horrible condition or whatever? Yeah, the fe- um, there's only one federal tax on gas. It's 10 cents. It's been that way since it was implemented. I'm going to say that was... That's as old as Mulroney, I think, and it's it's never been more than 10 cents, the federal excise tax, and that has nothing to do with provincial roads. The provincial gas tax has always been supposed to be for road work, bridge work, and the like, and we bring in about three times more in gas tax than we actually spend on roads, so it's a fair question. Yeah, so I, I don't know a little bit of homework on it. It's called the Canadian's new name, and it's not a federal gas tax fund now. It's called the Canada Community Building Fund. And the Canada Community Building Fund, if you're lucky enough to have three or four members in a community, well and good, you'll get that money to destroy whichever way you want. Where I'm speaking from, as, uh, what I'm seeing going on in my life, I'm 66, there's a little community called St. Bride's with a council. And to me, wouldn't it be a better name for that to the Canadian Road Maintenance Fund? Well, I mean, your gas tax money is not spent on a little side council road. You don't drive on. You might have one or two vehicles going up uh, using a little side road, but you look through a community with little side roads, beautiful back pavement, and you leave to Cape Shore, go to Essentia to a doctor's appointment, or go on an ambulance, or go get groceries. Like you're, you're weaving around like a person's loaded drunk, and you're going from one side of the road to the other trying to avoid it. If you cut from a moose, you can hit something just as bad as a moose. I'll tell you that on the Cape Shore. From, from Point Third out to, I'd say, roughly 11 or 12 kilometres, it's not even a disgrace of the road. And so this is where the money is going to. It's, it's called the, the Canadian Community Building Fund, so they can take that money, then little three or four in a community. And like I was talking to a lot of people on the Cape Shore, that is the weekend. Everybody is not lucky enough to have a council. So, but their other thing was to me, where did their gas tax money go to? Yeah, but the, 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 the new name is just a new name. It's not a new amount or anything. So exactly. No, just two billion dollars a year is the amount. Two, yeah. two, two billion a year at thirty-six hundred communities across Canada, and that's what it's done. But I mean, for to take it and for a building fund in the community, but uh, you're burning your gas on the highway, highway, so why wouldn't it be under for the road maintenance for where you're burning your gas to? Well, because it's for all kinds of stuff. It's for waste management and public transit and wastewater and, oh God, airports and disaster mitigation and culverts and tourists. That's why. It's because it's for like 20 different categories. It's not just for roads. And there's neither one left for to finish our roads, right? Then you can get to Black Asphalt for your community with your gas tax money, but then you got to drive on. You don't have a main road to drive on, but you get a beautiful side, little two or three hundred uh, feet of side roads here and there, wherever you feel like putting And then you got no main road to drive on. Yeah, it's a coal fund thing too, you know. Anyway, yes, okay. Yeah, well, I hope the lady from Bonavista has listened to, uh, to your program this morning because I, I said I'd, I'd just let her make a call and give her an update on where that's where the money is going to, and that's what it's called. It's just uh, change change the name, I guess, the same the same disgrace of money, as far as I'm concerned, because if it's burnt on the highway, it should be spent on the highway, in my opinion, Patty. But anyway. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Al. Right on. Thanks. Okay, man. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, the... That that's cost share stuff, and I think, and it is just a rename. There's no additional monies. Uh, 
but it, it covers like 15 or 20 categories. I mean, some as broad as tourism and culture and the like. And some of it's for roads and bridges, but there's all kinds of public transit as part of that, because this all comes from the, the infrastructure bank. That's where I think you, that's the, the, the wheel through, I think. Anyway, final break of the morning. When we come back, last chance to speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, line five. Vic, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and your listening audience. Thank mm-hmm. you for taking my call. No problem. You mentioned this morning the uh, law professors at uh, University of Dalhousie. I think they wrote a letter to the Minister of Justice uh, recommending that they create an oversight body for for, a, for the for the police actually or police here in Newfoundland. And so I, I think they said most problems have that. Uh, they said creating, creating an oversight board is critical to the rule of law. Uh, such oversight bodies are composed of civilian, civilians with the power to establish high-level policies in areas such as recruitment training standards and the use of force, uh, said the letter. Additionally, the board would ensure the transparency and accountability of police of police, the, uh, or the professor said, apparently. Yes, I, I thought yes, that was a good idea. And uh, I, I sort of wondered then if that wasn't recommended um, by the U.S. Commission when they did the Mount Cashel inquiry. I don't know, not that I know of. Uh, I just wonder, but it sounds an excellent idea because obviously uh, uh, with the problems we have with our police force now, I know it's, it's imperative that we would uh, certainly respect our police. I have nothing against the police. I think we, had a great, uh, we have a great police force in Newfoundland, but I, I think it somewhat sort of went downhill uh, there a few years ago because I remember... I think they had uh, one of the associate priests or assistant police force or something uh, on TV saying they were going to look at recruitment, uh, the old the old system of recruitment. Uh, that was, from my view, I think that was sort of a step backward. Uh, my 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 view would be that I think most policemen, uh, I think most of Canada would have to have a, I think a minimum was a diploma in and uh, policing. And I think that was, uh, I thought that was uh, uh, compulsory here in Newfoundland. I think they had to have a two-year diploma and, 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 and uh, corrections or police work. I think it was the, the, the diploma, I think the diploma was actually put off at Memorial. I think it still exists. Yeah, you can get a degree in police studies at Memorial, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so I think this is a good idea because right now, the other thing I, I certainly, I think I mentioned before, I'm questioning now, should we have a police could, should the police uh, um, chief of police in Newfoundland be a Newfoundlander? Because everybody's related to Newfoundland, and how objective is he going to be? I think we saw from the Mount Cashel uh, inquiry that a lot of the police, the two police, I think, uh, chiefs in charge then, had a high had connections with certain people and certainly relatives, you know, relatives, etc. And as you know, maybe it's time to look at maybe a, a, a chief of police outside of Newfoundland from outside of Newfoundland. Well, we've done that. There's been chiefs uh, that were uh, from here. I can't, yes, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now. I can picture him though, black mustache. Yes, I, I, I remember that. Now that that didn't work with that well. I remember. It did not. <laughs> I, I'm, aware of, I'm, I'm aware of that. 
uh, maybe he wasn't uh, uh, um, hired properly or the uh, you know but uh, but certainly this sounds very important uh, that uh, you know this uh, obviously they say this this uh, committee also exists in other provinces now and if that's going to be uh, certainly beneficial to the the rule of law and justice, I think it's imperative that we would have this uh, committee set up then. Yeah, I mean, the the departments, I don't think, would be adverse to it, nor should it be. I've heard from a couple of police officers already today that they said they would be in complete support of it because it would also deal with recruitment and training of officers and the numbers of officers. Oh, yes, so the, yeah. they'd be all for it, I, I would imagine. I can't speak for every by single way, cop, I obviously. Not, I have nothing against our police force, by the way. I think we have a great police force. But I say that they, I think they, did, they slipped a bit the last few years and with some of the things that's happening now. Anyway, and I thank you for taking my call. Thanks a lot, Vic. Uh, just someone chimed in very quickly. The police chief I was thinking of was Rick Daring. Rick Daring, that's name. correct. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a nice day. You too, Vic. All the thank best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Right, uh, last word goes to line two. Sharon, you're on the air. Yes, hi, Patty. I'm calling about senior citizens. Uh, I had a relative that passed away a couple of days ago. He was in a home, and uh, when you're in a senior's home, they take most of your check and you leave $150 on his check. So now he passed away. He has no one to bury him. And I phoned the income support uh, program, the provincial income support program. They can't help anyone that's over 65. This man was 87 years old. Uh, Canada Revenue Agency will give a death benefit of $2,500. Right. And he... And he will receive his last uh, old age and CPP check. But both of it together won't bury him. It's not enough money. Now, I found all three funeral homes, and they want the full amount up front. Now, meanwhile, I'm a senior citizen myself. I have my own funeral costs paid for, but I can't afford to pay his. So the thing is, I think that the government needs to give these seniors a bit more money on their death certificate to help pay for their burial. I mean, it's not even paying for the opening of the plot. When I add it up, it's not enough to pay for the plot or the priest. There's no visitation. Now, meanwhile... I've been going back and forth the past few weeks into the health science. Oh, sorry. I've been going back and forth to a hospital this past few weeks to visit him because he had a stroke. Mm-hmm. I'm a home care worker just 25 years. I've seen a lot of stuff. In his room, there was a mouse trap with dust all over it. His nightstand was full of rust. I couldn't put anything in it. And, and his sink in the room was black. So... How are these poor seniors supposed to stay healthy if they can't keep their rooms clean enough not to pick up any germs? Now, I did call the CEO, which I'm waiting for a call back, because I think some of this government money should be making sure that these rooms where the seniors are very sick should be clean and 
well taken care for of. For whoever would be in the room, and there should be money already in budgets for the appropriate number of staff and appropriate approach to cleaning. Now, we do know the unfortunate reality is hospitals can be quite dirty and obviously full of germs, which it sounds counterintuitive, but that's the facts of the matter. Uh, and regarding the CPP death benefit, you really got to apply for that right away, too, because that can take a bit of time to turn around. So, yeah. but, but I don't know how much I'm it costs. I'm sorry, I'll let you have the last word because we're 10 seconds uh, shy of 12 noon. Go ahead. It's uh, almost $5,000. Yeah. It's over $5,000 just to be in without any visitation. Mm-hmm. I, I've witnessed in, in the hospital a senior sitting in her wheelchair in the hallway watching TV and another senior. These are two pe- women that I witnessed in the hallway in wheelchairs waiting for something to be done in the room and watching her TV in a chair while they were having drills on the go. I know repairs got to be done, but these seniors need to be looked after a little bit better than they are. So meanwhile, if you haven't got any next of kin or anybody to take care of them, who buries them? If this is not enough money, who helps? Fair question and a legitimate concern. Just because of the time on the clock, you've had the last word, but thanks for telling us this one, Sharon. Okay. Take good care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. And we are out of time. But we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Paddy Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.